Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Mr. Matt Offenbacher. I'm going to ask it again. How's everything in your world, buddy? I survived a weekend trip to the beach with two small children. Okay. With only a little bit of sunburn and a moderate level of exhaustion, and so there's lots to celebrate. Nice. Well, you don't look burned, so that was probably minor. If you look at my shoulders. <laughs> oh, you got the shoulder burn? So, I mean, he can't again, see my shoulders, for the record. Yeah, he is wearing a shirt. We're not going to make this weird. Yeah. <laughs> He's wearing white, though, and it's not glowing from underneath the shirt, so it Fair. couldn't be too bad. Highlight, you know, what was the best part about bringing your kids to Galveston? I think just, like, I hate the beach. Okay. We'll just start there. Why? But, like... I don't want to get like sticky and gross and then get destroyed by the sun, especially when you have a 13 month old and an almost five year old who can't swim. Like you're just constantly worried about them wandering, you know, oh, yeah. like, it, yeah, you're constantly on edge the whole yeah, time. I know it's, it's a lot of energy, but it is the sheer delight of a kid splashing in the waves or running away from the water and all like, it's like, okay, I will be miserable at the beach for part of a day yeah. for this. <laughs> Did you so. get some good pictures? I know you're like, you're the picture guy now with your new camera. Well, I got all paranoid about bringing my new camera. So I got a few on the phone that made me wish I'd brought my camera. Yeah. So yeah, there's at least some good memories captured. Excellent. Uh, so good, good. We spent the weekend, same thing, not at the lake or at the, I call it a lake, not at the beach. We were in the backyard and... I put together some makeshift slip and slide stuff Ooh. for the kids, which again, they loved it. They wanted to go to the pool, but one of our kids' eyes was bothering her and we think it's too much pool time and chlorine. So anyway, stayed at home and yeah, just made the best of it as we could from the backyard, which it was good. Our water bill this one's going to be insane because I think I had the hose running for like six hours straight. Mm. So that's going to be good, which brought us to the thought, every kid's water toy or like whether it's a slip and slide or, you know, you think you plug in and it shoots water. If you could somehow find a way to capture that water and reuse it, I think it would be a hit. Now, I don't know how you still have to plug it in, have a pump and catch the water. But my wife probably, she's like every pool or every backyard water thing we've ever bought in just lets water go into the grass, go through the drain and out. So it's like literally money going down the drain. Yes. Literally. If there was a way to catch that and reuse it. And I'm like, oh, it's an idea. Have you ever seen it? No, I mean, I remember when we were little, like, you know, hey, I'm going to keep moving you around the yard so that, like, at least some of it gets watered. That's what we did. Um, <laughs> it like, generally, because <laughs> kids are running so, like, they just tear up all the grass everywhere. Like, it's just mud and oh, torn up grass, so it's more damage to the yard. It is, it is. It's like having, when you have dogs, they rip around and the, your lawn's messed up. And it's like, no, that's my kids and just the amount of water they've used. And, and now we have chickens, which also have messed up our that's yard. That's right. That's a whole another topic of conversation. I got to experience maggots for the first time not long ago. That Congratulations. was Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was something my daughter was going to take care of is, you know, take care of these chickens and raise chickens. And the last time she's even considered looking at them, let alone cleaning up the coop has been weeks. Yeah, it's better if you do it. So now it's my job. Uh, yeah, exactly. But anyway, enough about that. It's all well and fun. That's somewhat of a no-go. And leading into this is product no-goes. There's a lot of products. So Matt, 
When it comes to product no-goes, there's always an urge to try other things. And whether it be because of cost or maybe they saw a headliner on a billboard in Midland or whatever the case may be, there's always that urge, right? And so why, from your experience, are we always tempted to try new or other things? I mean, look, I think the biggest thing is we're trying to save some money. So a lot of potential products or product samples or even component samples that we receive are, hey, I got this stuff and I bet it could work well as 85% of the time it could be a lubricant, not it is a lubricant or we'll package it and sell it as a lubricant. And it's like, well, what is it? And it turns out it is just probably trash. Like let's say a refinery has a stream of stuff they can't sell, yeah. sell it to the oil field. We just find some things, you know, that it's like, hey, we really probably shouldn't consider this or shouldn't use it. But I understand the strong desire to see if it just might work. Sometimes these things do work better, but there's a lot of stuff for workovers where it's like, yeah, xylene and toluene are awesome performance wise. They're also very carcinogenic, highly flammable. Like there's a lot of other things you have to do where one, that may be necessary for a certain operation that has certain equipment or certain procedures where the people using it all the time know how to properly do that. It's another thing to say, hey, let's bring this into the drilling fluid chemicals inventory. And it's very different than what we already use. And yes, it works really well, but it's nasty. And somebody who's kind of used to certain precautions with drilling fluid additives is not as cautious as they need to be for this one-off. Right. I think no matter what it is, if it's different or new, there's some sort of appeal to it. I mean, hey, we got to try it. You know, the lab can only tell you so much. Let's throw it on a rig. Let's see what happens. And maybe we'll discover the new sliced bread. Yeah. You know, for some of the folks that want to be pioneers out there, there may be some pressure to try something that I'd call a no-go. I failed to define that earlier, but these are just things that we really don't think belong on a rig. Products that come across our additives or components for assessment that we either try and avoid, you know, a lot of this is from the customer saying, hey, I found somebody, they've got this great stuff, or so they're telling me and like, I really want to try it. And what do you see? Mm -hmm. And those are the ones where we say, look, there's just other factors we have to be aware of. Like maybe they're totally on point, but they don't work with drilling fluids and they don't understand that this could be dangerous in a different way than the way it's normally used or it's bad for the environment in different ways where as part of a drilling fluid and a spill, there's added risk. Just those kinds of things that we'd rather avoid. But generally what we're trying to do, overall, we're trying to save money. Sometimes it does in fact work better and we say, well, shoot, can I come up with something that's less worse? Yeah. And then sometimes it's just like, well, I heard one time this worked great and now we got to do it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the big picture of why this is so tempting. Yeah. So do you have any examples and you don't have to necessarily give like specifics on which product, but do you have any examples where an operator or even it was just to satisfy curiosity, something was thrown on a rig and it was a complete disaster. Like, have you had anything like that happen or even like getting put into a lab? Like, Oh, we need to check this product out in the lab first. And all of a sudden it was like, Whoa, we didn't expect that. That was a complete dumpster fire. Well, like, thankfully, you know, one thing is read your safety data sheets, people. Um, <laughs> and so when we receive a sample in the lab to test, you know, recently we were offered a, a lubricant. It had a very low flashpoint. And look, you can transport things with low flashpoints, but it requires special considerations. It's going to cost more to transport, this sort of thing. But if you have something with a flashpoint of like 70 degrees, when everything else is a flashpoint of 140, 150 degrees, mm. That's just way out of the ordinary, all the extra considerations besides that the stuff was really nasty 
And we went ahead and looked at it. It, it didn't really work, but it was just like, wow. If we were really excited about a product that had properties like that, it would be a no-go. Like we might test its performance potential and then we would immediately look for something similar with much safer characteristics before we would ever consider putting it on a customer's rig. Yeah. And look, some of these operators, it might not be directly posted, but operators, drilling contractors, they might actually have policies against some of these, like, hey, the products need to have this and this. And it might not be clear what those rules are, but generally for those big outliers, they're probably prohibited in a lot of scenarios and you don't even know about it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And talking about products that just don't fit into what we do, there was a gentleman who had reached out quite a while ago. It was just when we were still in our old office and he was touting it as like a hemp derived LCM mm -hmm. and it was green and everything else. And we could use it and as part of our ESG initiatives. And he was very adamant. And, you know, it's funny. I said, well, if you'd like to give us a sample, we can test it in the lab. Said, oh, okay. So then the gentleman proceeds to bring like these massive bags of hemp, like which obviously had a unique odor. And so I had <laughs> right. these like big bags of hemp LCM in my <laughs> office. It wasn't just like a Ziploc. It was like literally like, I think he brought like a big bucket and like some had like three or four pounds of this stuff. I was like, what are we going to do with all this hemp? Like we just need a little bit, but he wanted to bring the whole gambit. And again, like it just, it didn't really pass the litmus test. And there was so much conviction that it was going to be like the best thing. And it was going to like save the world's problems. And he presented, you know, some data that somewhat, I guess, was applicable, but not really. And anyway, that's really one of my only examples that I can think of. We've had some unique oils get brought out to a rig, which didn't end up working out either, but we'll get into detail on that. Okay, Matt, so you talked about Flashpoint. What about like from a nomenclature standpoint, you're used to a certain product that, and then a new product comes out with perhaps the same name. Is that kind of where you're going with that? Well, yeah. I mean, even some of these like chemistry families, so we were working, this was years ago, I was working for a customer and they wanted this very specific oxidizer as part of a well treatment. And it had a very similar name to another one supplied by the same vendor, similar chemical name and similar trade, like their trade names were like just numbers. And so it was like sequentially similar. But if you got sent the wrong one and you left the drum open, it could self-combust with the other product. And it was just one of these like, look, is there any way that we can split these like make sure that we never accidentally get sent a drum since this stuff's kept in the same warehouse. Like the other stuff was less worse, still not great. But like this other stuff, it was like, I absolutely cannot have this mistake happen. And not only that, but you think about a warehouse worker, a truck driver, like these aren't the people who are in the loop on, it's like, hey, I just match things up and send it, right? We just felt very strongly that this was a very significant risk to personnel and to the rig site. And because this stuff was so strong, like there's regulations and nomenclature stuff, it would be very difficult to like private label it as something else. Like you'll see this with biocides, right? Like biocides, because they're like federally registered and all that sort of thing, a lot of them, it's very difficult to have a separate trade name. You'd rather have the people that make it use their name and it be like approved all the way up than like label it, you know, mm -hmm. my biocide. And then you have to do the same things because it's a different, even though it's the exact same chemical, yeah. there might be confusion on paperwork, interstate transfer. Like there's all kinds of other things that could be a problem when you have something that's quote unquote dangerous. Yeah. This was one of those where it was like, hey, could we just straight up avoid this? Those are kind of products on its own, but 
you know, the other thing that I think about a lot too is like mixing, right? Like, you know, in our lab, we keep the strong ass and strong bases. Like they're in different cabinets for a reason. Like, <laughs> and you don't want to get them mixed up and we mix them under a fume hood. And like, there's very specific procedures and protocols. And I don't do that on a rig and I don't want to inadvertently mix something. I mean, some of these things will react with other things very quickly. I know there was a story of somebody, I'm trying to remember correct story, but basically they had an oxidizer on a rig and they had a solvent for basically a cleaning spacer and the oxidizer was being used to like break down some polymer stuff. And somehow a bucket got kicked into one pit and it combusted. Mm. And you know, the fire suppression systems went off and it was taken care of, but like, I don't need those things in the same place at the same time. And so thinking about, okay, if we're sending something out that could be a bad actor or does it have other things that might be on the same truck inadvertently that could be a problem? Right. And then like on the other mixing side of just, hey, don't mix these two at the same time, which I don't think you can just go by your word. I think there's there's what we can sometimes like, let's say a customer says, we have to use this. We have to try it. And we say, okay, well, we're going to use some special procedures. This is different than what everybody's used to. Let's all like make sure everybody's on the same page. Mm-hmm. We do that for any change, really, whether it's more dangerous or not. We want everybody to understand the situation. I mean, think about going from diesel-based mud to synthetic. A lot of people are like, oh, synthetic, that means it's healthy. Or skin exposure with, oh, pink mud or diesel-based mud, it smells bad and all this. And so I need to get it off my skin right away. But like synthetic, you know, it doesn't smell. It can't be bad for me. And it's like, no, actually it will dehydrate your skin and cause irritation much more rapidly. Like the complacency is what can make a lot of those. You guys have more skin incidents with synthetic than diesel, especially during the transition because everybody thinks, well, I don't smell bad. I'm not. So just behavioral things that might change, but it could be vapors or dust where it's like, look, the protocols say wear this type of mask or, or whatever, but You know, somebody says, look, actually, this can be far more irritating than the usual stuff. I say, look, you need to wear a better mask, wear a, you know, a full respirator, whatever. So we all agree we're going to wear a respirator. And then somebody goes to mix the usual suspects and they forget to change PPE because they've never had to wear that in the past. And it's been a few months and they forgot, like, do we want to create an environment where somebody has to dramatically alter their behavior to safely handle a product? And like dust and vapors and sort of things can do that where a safety data sheet doesn't just, it has recommended PPE, but it also, you know, now the global harmonization system offers up some things where it's like, hey, this may be a little more irritating with the idea that you might not be sensitive, but I am. And even though I'm wearing the like minimum PPE, I might want to consider extra stuff because I have asthma or whatever, right? Those things always make me a little, little leery. And then finally, just on the environmental side, like we never intend to spill anything. But could we find something that's potentially less harmful at same or less cost or similar cost? If it's really nasty, for example, if it spills, it would be really bad. Could we make it a dry product? Could we do something, uh, get a little more creative where we alter the product? But people do damage totes with forklifts. It happens, right? There's just things that can happen. And, you know, in certain areas, this is going to draw a lot more attention. You don't do this ever, but you especially don't want to do it where there's going to be 8 million people breathing down your neck and a bunch of you know, meetings and everything, if we can keep it from ever happening, I consider some of those a no-go. Like, I just don't want to expose myself to the mess if I can avoid it. Yeah. No, and unfortunately, with the level of experience and just overall people that have a good amount of experience in drilling fluids within the company, a lot of times we can identify these perhaps sooner than say other folks at perhaps other companies, just because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And if someone is offered a product 
that, oh, it sounds great. And the marketing material is awesome. Like, let's bring it in and play with it. You know, we're fortunate to have folks like yourself and Lee and everyone else in the lab. But I think the point I'm trying to make is if anyone's listening to this, who's not part of our organization is, is just be very careful when you get proposed with a new product or something that you're unfamiliar with. And to Matt's point, like first things first, get a safety data sheet and read that to understand the risks associated with handling some of these new products. And if it's a dry, like this polymer, again, just gather up as much information that you can before exposing either yourself or your people to these types of products. Along with that, Matt, so we as a company, what do we do to ensure or What's our sort of step-by-step process when a new product is brought to our attention for you guys to consider? I think first things first, you can learn a lot. Even if I can't use it on a rig, I want to test it and maybe I can think about how it works. So maybe there's a similar chemistry out there that if I can find this thing to work, and this is the cool thing also about the way we're structured as CES, because I can call you know our sister companies, JCAM and Sialco, and I can basically say, hey, This molecule seems to do something really cool, but it's not safe on a rig. Do I need a longer chain? Is there something I can add to it? Is there a reaction that could be done that we keep the functional groups we need, but get rid of some of the other stuff? Like, what are some ideas here to make this work? And generally, we can kind of get the creative process going, even though the stuff that we just tested and got excited about has no chance from our own, you know, health and safety perspective of something we want to be involved with sending out as is on a rig. And so that's, is it a substitute? Can we redirect? And a lot of times we'll get that far. And yes, it may cost a little bit more, but when you're able to explain either to management or to a customer, like, here's what we're offering you and here's what we're helping you with. Do you understand why we want to go this route? Most of them would say, yeah, you know, I don't want 70 degree flashpoint chemicals on my rig. Lubricants are all over the place. Like they're notorious for this. We see that quite a bit. We see a lot of, I mean, everybody knows my thoughts on lubricants probably, but. If you don't, or if you're out there and you don't, go back. Matt has a lot of good insight on the lubricant game. But I mean, there's a lot of people's trash out there that couldn't be sold and it was either too dirty to be used or, you know, nobody else wanted it. So of course the oil field might take it. I think there's that. Finding that substitute that makes a little bit more sense. You know, there have been occasions where somebody says, look, I really want to try this. I hear what you're saying. I appreciate what you have to say. I acknowledge what you said. I like, you want to make sure that, especially when you're talking about safety and health, get the right people in the room so that everybody can have a level-headed conversation about understanding risks, mitigating risks, that the right voices are there to say, okay, well, if we have to do this, this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. The thing is, if you don't have to do it all the time, it may be we can find a safe way to do it. I worry about, Justin, I know I've used this example before, but most new woodworkers don't get hurt. Mm -hmm. It's when you've been doing it 15 or 20 years, aka like about me, and you get complacent. You forget to use, yeah, the blade guard gets in the way. You do something that you feel like you can get away with one more time. And in the same way, I think if we had to have special safety protocols for a product because it's different, everybody's pretty careful. And then when we, ah, it's not that bad, you know? Oh, no, I don't need to wear those kind of gloves anymore. Like, I got to go all the way to the shed and get those. I'll just keep the ones I have on. I've got PPE on. What's the problem? You know, can we find a way that if we're going to have to do this, we can make it not routine every time we do it? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think normally the first operation where the safety supervisor is there and everybody's doing the JSA for the first time, that could actually be a very safe, cautious operation. It's when it's, dude, I've done this a hundred times. Hold my beer. We're not drinking on the rig. Just you get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, oh, watch this. It's no big deal. 
I think that's where we get into danger. I mean, one example that comes to mind immediately is think about caustic. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, you should have a healthy fear. I don't know if that's the right word. Healthy fear. We're going to call it that. But, like, you need to use the caustic barrel, and you need to wear the right PPE, and you need to bleed it in the way it's meant to be used. And, yes, caustic's very effective. There aren't great substitutes, or we'd be using them now, you know, from an economics perspective especially. But there is a safe way to do it. The problem is that it's a separate thing, and in a way, I'm kind of glad the barrel is all the way over. You know, Mm -hmm. you got to go make the effort. So it's like, I am doing something different and special. If the caustic barrel sat right over the hopper and I could turn and, you know, cut a sack of gel and toss it in one and then go cut a sack of caustic and dump it in the other, how long does it take until I foolishly dump caustic in the hopper or, you know, something like that? Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's one where people, oh, I've been doing this a long time. And it's like, well, we want to make sure that you're still able to do it for a really long time. Yeah. It's very true. And complacency, whether or not that applies to, like, whether it applies to the topic, but I think complacency, especially in the oil field and any probably industrial type industry can get you in a bind real fast. And like you said, it's the folks that have been doing it for so long that it's just kind of routine, but just one more time, it just increases the risk of something actually happening. Whereas when you're new or green and you're always following the steps and wearing all the PPE and you know following protocol on how to test a product, yeah, it's something to be aware of. And again, I think, like you said, behavioral change is the hardest change to make in change management or anything like that. And so for the folks that, again, have been doing it for so long, it's oftentimes easy to just, oh, it's you, that gray hair factor, I'll just do it this way. And instead of kind of thinking back to the basic steps, whether it be to save time or because you've done it for so long. But nonetheless, I think this was an interesting conversation that brings up some interesting topics. Any sort of last closing comments on product no-goes, as we're calling it? I think it just goes back to, if it seems too good to be true, like we always say, it probably is. Mm -hmm. There are some things even in the past that worked really, really well. And you might have some old hands who say that it's great. And it probably was relative to what they had at the time. But there's a reason that we've moved on. And it's like any of this, I think, If you approach a new technology or anything different, let's have the approach with health, safety, and the environment in mind as well. Yeah, great closing last words. And with that said, folks, if you could review, subscribe, and share this with someone who's interested in drilling fluids, please also follow us on LinkedIn. You know, I'm going to not say follow us on LinkedIn, but connect with us on LinkedIn is probably better. We like the followers, but we also want to build a community around people who are interested and want to learn in drilling fluids. So connect with the AES Drilling Fluids page on LinkedIn. Addy and the team are always putting out great content to learn and to share what we're doing to just increase the culture that we have here. I think that's one thing we've done really well with our content is really sort of giving an inside look on the culture that we have here. You know, we've done the mud bloggers. And for those who are curious what mud bloggers is, it's we take folks within the company and they share their story. And so really giving people a voice to share their story to, you know, LinkedIn and whoever else that is interested in learning about it. But connect with both Matt and I as well individually. We're always looking to engage with our audience. Check us out on YouTube. We've got some great tech tips on there and videos for those that want to visually see some of the stuff that we're talking about. A lot of good testing and procedures and just good visual education there. And with that said, everyone, take care, be safe, and enjoy your summer. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.